From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And today's show is called Voices of Hope, True Stories of Resilience, Recovery, and Renewal. It's part of Carnegie Hall's Voices of Hope Festival, which examines the life-affirming power of music and the arts during times of crisis. And today we feature true personal stories from writers Laurel Ross, Sarah Fearon, and Wendy Townsend. A large, dark heap was positioned in the middle of Sunnyside, a narrow one-way street. I looked closer to see what it was. A bulky woman dressed in black was sitting upright in the street, surrounded by shopping bags. A surreal scene on a sunny spring day. Just before Valentine's Day 2020, and approaching almost a full year of heartache, I was walking from Central Park West on 76th Street towards Columbus Avenue. I was yakking on the phone with my friend Regina when I cut myself off. Hold on, let me call you back. I just found a blue pouch on the ground. Let me try to work some good karma. And on today's Between the Lines segment, Stephen Lewis shares some thoughts on fame, fortune, and a life led with purpose. For years, I've wondered if the precious time I spent pounding on a keyboard could have been more purposely spent doing something of greater value to humankind or making better money for my family. So did my businessman father. That's all just ahead on Read 650. First up is Laurel Ross. She lives in Chicago, where she is a writer, birder, prairie restoration volunteer, and novice orchid enthusiast. Here's Laurel reading Good Samaritans. Cruising my congested new neighborhood, looking for a parking space, I was annoyed when the pickup truck ahead suddenly slowed down. Was he going to snag a spot before I got to it? No, he made a sharp left into the alley, and as I accelerated, I saw why. A large, dark heap was positioned in the middle of Sunnyside, a narrow one-way street. Cars were parked on both sides, and there was no way to avoid hitting it, him, her, except to duck down the alley like the truck. I briefly considered backing up, but instead, I looked closer to see what it was. A bulky woman dressed in black was sitting upright in the street, surrounded by shopping bags. A surreal scene on a sunny spring day. She appeared to be alive. I turned off my engine, put on the blinkers, and walked over to her. She looked right into my eyes. Do you need help, I asked, knowing it was a stupid question. She began to flail her arms, struggling like an upside-down beetle. My knees are broken, she wailed. A tattered face mask dangled from her chin. I realized that I'd left my own mask in the car. 
I could almost see the droplets flying out of her mouth when she sputtered her words. My mind raced through all the newly issued directives from the governor, the mayor, and the CDC. Avoid contact with others. Maintain a distance of at least six feet. This was the beginning of the pandemic, and I was still learning the rules of engagement. Completely flummoxed and trying to buy time, I lamely offered, Let me move your things out of the street. I was queasy touching her grocery bags and her huge leather purse, but it was easier than touching her. Can you roll onto your hands and knees and crawl? I pleaded. She wheezed. I looked around. Why were no other cars arriving on the scene? How long had we been there? The woman was not small and not strong and not positioned to be maneuvered easily. But there was no other choice. I gritted my teeth, gave her my hands, and tried to heave her from her bum onto her feet. After only a few seconds, it was clear I'd never raise her. She was agitated, and I was losing it. As I began to call 911, cursing myself for not doing that immediately, I saw a short, dark young man emerging from the alley, briskly walking directly toward us as if to join the fray. The pickup driver. He had stashed the truck and returned to help. With his strength and my clumsy assistance, we pulled her upright. Her knees were not broken. She could stand. She could slowly walk. Where are you going? She pointed to an apartment building 50 feet away, a building I can see from my dining room window. I moved her bags to the door. Her groceries were heavy, cans and bottles, and a large box of cheap wine. To her rescuer, she said, You are my angel, my angel. Should I call an ambulance, the angel asked. No, no, no. At that moment... My personal concern about intimate contact with an unhealthy-looking, unclean-smelling stranger overcame my impulse to help. The angel would get her home. I raced to my car, sprayed disinfectant, parked, and ran to my apartment to shower. My gratitude to the angel is immense. He saved us both. Laurel Ross is a retired conservation ecologist, active in the Chicago live storytelling community. Currently working on a memoir that explores her youthful excesses, Laurel has recently discovered that composing daily haiku is an elegant way to merge her passions for nature, zen, and poetry. Native New Yorker Sarah Fearon is a graduate of the High School for the Performing Arts and New York University. She writes and performs both comedy and tragedy and says, quote, sometimes it's the same thing. Here she is reading Find, Lost, Found. Just before Valentine's Day 2020, 
and approaching almost a full year of heartache, I was walking from Central Park West on 76th Street towards Columbus Avenue. I was yakking on the phone with my friend Regina when I cut myself off. Hold on, let me call you back. I just found a blue pouch on the ground. Let me try to work some good karma. Without hesitation, Regina said, go get it, girl. I picked up the pouch from the base of a tree, then pulled the drawstrings open. Knowing it must be an important treasure with sentimental value to someone, I peeked inside. Glanced again to get a glimpse of sparkle nestled in the periwinkle meets Tiffany blue sack. A bracelet of Greek evil eye beads strung together with alternating discs of faux diamonds. I assume that whoever lost it must be upset. I looked at the closest brownstone door and wondered whether I should knock or maybe just press all the buzzers. I chose the buzz-all method, and a few moments later, some guy opened the inner glass door. I was passing by, and I think someone lost this, I said. He was sweet, but silent, and I became afraid that I may sound hoaxy, adding, if I make a sign, do you have any tape? He came back a few moments later with packing tape, and in exchange, I gave him one of my holiday cards about clapping out of the windows at 7 p.m. during COVID to prove I was well-intentioned. I got the sign taped up, found, blue pouch, call this number. Then glancing back at the scene of the find, I noticed a Zappos box near the tree. Transported into the opening credits of my own episode of Law & Order, I flipped the box over as if it was in a plastic forensic bag. The label had the exact address I was standing in front of and someone's name. Maybe the pouch fell out of her pocket. I took a photo of the label and called the number. Hello? A woman answered. Hello, Angela? I was walking by and found a blue pouch, and I wondered if it might be yours. Yes, she said. You are so nice to... I left it there on purpose. A few pieces of jewelry I did not want for someone to find. I exhaled. Oh, I thought it seemed important. That's so nice, she said. I assured her I would find someone to give it to. Then I took a picture of the treasures to show Regina. The evil eye bracelet plus another that had black beads with a silver arrow, a necklace with a bunny pendant, two mismatched earrings, and a salmon-red woven string friendship bracelet with golden beads. If I had decided to keep anything, it would have been the friendship bracelet. Echoes of the call with a woman offered a renewed sense of the default human condition, a sudden awareness of the ramifications of the kindness of strangers, two strangers, I decided then that I had to see the original intention to fruition and give it all away. But I also had to add something from me to manifest the gesture. So I sewed the beads into the shape of a heart over the heart of a jacket, adding a few of my own colorful beads. Keeping the friendship bracelet intact and tucked into the blue pouch, 
I place the sack in the top pocket of my jacket. I imagine the heart of Greek eye beads would offer protection against any negative energy of the evil eye. I imagine looking into someone's eyes and handing it off. Then, I left the embroidered jacket in a good spot for the treasure to be found. Just prior to the COVID pandemic, Sarah Fearon's one-person show, 2B, A Bottomless Cup of Real Estate Crazy, ran at the Friars Club, as well as the Players Theater in Greenwich Village. As a real estate salesperson, she spends much of her day doing laps around the city on foot or on a bicycle, and she serves on the board of Irish-American writers and artists. Wendy Townsend is a lifelong lover of animals, and she's lived with large lizards since she was eight years old. She's a graduate of the Vermont College MFA program in writing for children and young adults, and her contribution to our special Carnegie Hall Voices of Hope Festival event is an essay she's written entitled The Frog. This is Wendy Townsend. When the pandemic really took hold, I'd started working 60-hour weeks protecting reptiles and amphibians on utility construction and repair sites. From 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., April through October, I walked the job sites in my hard hat and day-glow vest with my snake stick, and while I moved animals out of immediate harm's way, I watched the destruction of their habitats. Since then, my crisis hasn't been about illness or unemployment, but about keeping faith in my purpose. I'm a writer, and I don't know any other way to reach readers about biodiversity loss except through emotions but I couldn't yell loud enough to be heard through a pandemic. I felt ineffective. I've written my stories of being at a pond with frogs and turtles and meeting lizards in a tropical forest. In these wild places with these living beings, I find acceptance and a security that can't be taken away except by the destruction of the ponds and forests. I've hoped readers would grasp what I'm saying and feel as I do about protecting the earth. Science shows how overconsumption of nature causes pandemics, but I couldn't see social or political will to change our behavior. I wanted to stop striving and stay home in the barn with my lizards and write lighthearted things. Then one day I met a frog on a job site. My task was to make sure no rare turtles were in the pools of water they were about to drop wooden mats on. I squatted by one and saw no turtles, but there was so much life. Spring peeper and wood frog tadpoles swam through the crisscrossing weed stems with clusters of toad eggs clinging loosely. A dragonfly nymph crawled up one stem, hunting mosquito larvae that wriggled near the water's surface. Another movement caught my eye, a big frog down in the mud, and then I saw the truck coming. The truck was a giant, roaring machine attached to a flatbed stacked with wooden mats like huge pallets. Frantically, I felt around in the mud for the frog while the truck drove through the open gate. The diesel engine vibrated in my bones, and the tadpoles darted here and there in short, straight lines as though panicked. The truck stopped, its engine rumbling. The driver got out of the cab, walked around back, climbed into a seat, and waited to operate an iron claw on a cable. Since no rare turtles were present, I had to give the okay. The claw picked up a mat by a chain wrapped around the middle planks and lifted it up in the air, tilting, balancing, 
Then it swung the huge mat over the pool and dropped it, sending muddy water up in the air and rolling back into the wetland, bending cattails, collapsing and tearing apart the spider webs between their stalks. I kept walking the job site, pushing away the image of the frog under the wooden mat, checking other pools for rare turtles. Later, I walked back. Approaching the pool, I saw the heavy mat covering more than half of it, but then I also saw a pair of round eyes and a nose above the water's surface, the frog. Relief spread through me, and hope, because there he was, saying, I'm still here. He dove under when I came close, and I stood looking at the swirl in the water. I saw things a little better, less dire. The world was still in trouble, but I realized that I wanted to keep writing. On breaks, sitting in my truck, a sleepless night in a motel, a Sunday afternoon at home, I pulled together an essay about the frog and the snakes and turtles on the job sites that was accepted by an online magazine. Writing the essay kept me from giving up on my purpose. It is about the frog's resilience and mine. Wendy Townsend's book, The Sundown Rule, was one of Kirkus's best books for children. And her third novel, Blue Iguana, was shortlisted for the 2015 Green Earth Book Award. Wendy has recently traveled to Jamaica to write about the Jamaican iguana, and she's at work on a memoir called Half Lizard. The stories you're hearing today, along with many others, are available in book and ebook form. They're just one of dozens of themed collections we've published, and they help fund our mission to promote writers. They're terrific gifts, and they're perfect bedtime reading, and you can view all of the titles of the themed anthologies, including The First Time, What We Ate, Thoughts of Home, and many others, under the Shop tab on our website, read650.org. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Meyer, Karen Duques, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. And our show was produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from Carnegie Hall in New York City, whose mission is to present extraordinary music and musicians on its three stages. Carnegie Hall brings the transformative power of music to the widest possible audience, provides visionary education programs, and fosters the future of music through the cultivation of new works, artists, and audiences. Ignite passion. Embrace joy. For more information and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org. Stephen Lewis is a former mentor at SUNY Empire State College. He's a longtime member of the Sarah Lawrence College Writing Institute faculty, and he's a longtime freelancer. His work has been published widely, and for this edition of Between the Lines, Steve reads Fame, Fortune, and a Purposeful Life. For years, I've wondered if the precious time I spent pounding on a keyboard could have been more purposely spent doing something of greater value to humankind or making better money for my family. So did my businessman father. I read and reread and taught Marianne Moore's damning pronouncement, there are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. 
Then my editor, Dutton, faxed me an article she received from the Marion, Indiana Chronicle Tribune with the headline, Book Saves Man from Bullet Wound. My pulse quickened as I read about 27-year-old Shenandoah Shane Maxey, who was coming home from work one day when he heard a gunshot. Someone, perhaps his ex-wife, had shot at Mr. Maxey with a twenty-two caliber gun. It felt like someone punched me really hard in the arm, he said. Before the bullet had shattered bone or severed an artery, though, it burrowed into a book inside an insulated lunch bag Maxie had slung over his shoulder. And not just any book. My book, Zen and the Art of Fatherhood. I was reading that book in hopes of becoming a better father, Maxie said. Now I'm really glad I bought it. Me too. My writing had purpose. I raced to the horn and called my father. Unfortunately, the old man wasn't impressed. He snorted and then wondered what the advance for the book was. That was years ago. In the interim, my father passed along to his ultimate paycheck. I published more books destined for the remainder table and continued writing and pondering why I do what I do. I'm 74 now, and I still don't know why I do it or why I keep doing it. Clearly, neither fame nor fortune is at hand. But I was thinking today about Mr. Maxey, wondering whatever happened to him. Did he become a better dad? Did his wife try to shoot him again? The cad never wrote to thank me for saving his life. As Billy Pilgrim's army buddy said, so it goes. And so it goes all the way down to this shrug. It all seems pointless if I'm not writing about it. Steve Lewis is a contributing writer at Talking Writing Magazine and senior editor and literary ombudsman for Read 650. His new novel, The Lights Around the Shore, will be published this year by Moonshine Cove. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show and a place we invite writers to contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. To share your observations, click the submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you will also find open submission calls for upcoming shows. Read 650 is a registered nonprofit literary organization whose mission is to promote writers. And we do that, among other things, with this forum for true personal stories told five minutes and 650 words at a time. Our thanks today to writers Laurel Ross, Sarah Fearon, Wendy Townsend, and Steve Lewis. If you like what you heard today, please visit our website and consider a donation to support our mission to promote writers. Please tell your friends about us and help spread the word about the spoken word. This episode of Read 650 was part of Carnegie Hall's very first all-digital festival, Voices of Hope, exploring the life-affirming power of music and the arts. With streamed performances that range from orchestral and chamber works to folk and jazz, Voices of Hope features music that inspires change and lifts the human spirit. For complete festival details and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org slash voicesofhope. For more Read 650, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or at read650.org. Thanks for listening today. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.